This is the Bob McCown Podcast, brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. Something a little different. Uh, this is uh, the first week of November, and on the 13th, the Hockey Hall of Fame will do its annual induction in Toronto. Included in that are two members of the media. Dan Rusinuski will go in as the Foster Hewitt Award winner. Uh, and Mark Mulvoy, who is a longtime executive at Sports Illustrated, a writer in Boston, a writer for Sports Illustrated, is going to win the Elmer Ferguson Award as a media member to be honored by the Hockey Hall of Fame. And just something different. I, I, I Mark is a an unbelievable person. I, I I've known Mark a long time. I met him for the first time uh, in the late seventies, uh, and uh, we haven't kept in that much communication. But I thought it would be fascinating to uh, spend some time with Mark Mulvoy today, Richard, who has SI background just like you do. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> much different. I mean, Mark Mulvoy's. Uh... Uh, kind of an iconic figure at Sports Illustrated. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a third line winger, as they say, but happy to be a third line winger. Um, he, um, John, you know, prob- there's probably nobody more associated with hockey at Sports Illustrated in its, in its history than Mark Mulvoy. Um, from his editorship, where he really pushed hockey and, and gave it more coverage at a time when SI really had impact, to his work as a writer. He's, he's associated with Bobby Orr. I'm sure he did the mm-hmm. first long form piece on Bobby Ward SI. You know, he profiled whether it was like the Gila Floors and people like that. He was the first American writer to profile all of those people for any kind of national publication. Um, so he's a seminal figure in um, in the American hockey world. And he is a very, very big reason, at least in my opinion, why um, hockey got a lot of national publicity in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, because Mark Mulvoy ran other than ESPN, the most influential sports outlet in, in the, in the United States. Well, the professional hockey writers association got this one, right. It took them a long time to do it, but Mark Mulvoy is going into the hockey hall of fame in the media wing and it's well-deserved. We will talk with Mark Mulvoy on the McCowan podcast, Richard Deitch, John Shannon. After this. Hi, this is Bob McCowan for betrivers.com. Hey, if you're looking for a sports book or casino app, you should check out the Bet Rivers Sports and Casino app today. Play all of your favorite casino games for real money anywhere and anytime. Plus, get in the action with each sports game with hundreds of sports betting options. And get ready to feel like a VIP because you'll earn both loyalty level points and bonus store points on every real money wager you make. You must be 19 plus, available in Ontario only. Please play responsibly. If you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you, contact Connex Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 or speak to an advisor free of charge. BetRivers.com. Welcome back to the McCown Podcast. John Shannon, Richard Deitch. Joined by the 2023 Elmer Ferguson Award winner, which puts him in the Hockey Hall of Fame media division. Former SI executive, writer, uh, bon vivant, great golfer, Mark Mulvoy. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be back with you. It's been a long time. And congratulations on the induction, which will occur on the 13th of November here in Toronto. 
Um, tell me when when you got the uh, the call that you were going to become a member of the media wing of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, were you as surprised as many of us? Because I think a lot of us thought that we'd forgotten Mark Mulvoy and his impact on the game. That's true. It's funny. I was driving down to the airport in Miami to pick up my son, his wife, and my little grandson. They were coming in from Switzerland, <clears throat> where they lived, and they spent a couple of weeks with us. When I got the call, uh, and uh, I mean, I, I won't say I drove off the road, but my wife had to make sure I was all right. I was thrilled, honored, touched. I mean, I know so many uh, you know, comrades, really, who have also uh, won the Ferguson Award, and I knew Elmer, of course, and this was sort of the topping on the cake for somebody who's been retired and been basically out of the mainstream media since uh, the end of the Olympics in 1996. You were the man who uh, uh, probably was responsible for the most important headline uh, or the front cover of Sports Illustrated uh, in the 1990s, and Every one of us around the hockey world put our chest out a little farther than normal when, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have a copy in front of me, why hockey is hot and basketball is not. Well, I must tell you about that cover. Adam Silver, the commissioner now of the NBA, is a, used to babysit for us in Rye, New York. And he just <laughs> called and said to me, David will never speak to you again. He was furious. <laughs> David Stern had been forever complaining that there was too much hockey in the magazine and not enough basketball. And I just said to him, I said, well, I'm a hockey guy, David. I grew up in Boston and while the Celtics were the dominant team in Massachusetts and New England at the time, when you're a hockey guy, you're a hockey guy. And the fact of the matter is what happened at that time, I forget who the uh, NBA had in the playoffs, but you know, the Rangers were hot and you know, Matt, let's face it, when teams in New York are hot, Madison Avenue and the networks get involved, you know, it's fantastic. And that's the reason he wasn't happy with it. Uh, but David was never happy with what he perceived to be the lack of coverage I gave to his game, and uh, which was sort of laughable in, in some ways because they got a heck of a lot of coverage in the magazine. <laughs> Why the NHL's hot and the NBA's not. Uh, yeah. Let's get this here. June, looks like June 16th, maybe. No? Uh, anyway. 1994, it was the New York Rangers and the Vancouver Canucks in the Stanley right. Cup final. You know what yep. I'm looking at? Look at these. Look at the. Actually, what I'm looking at, Mark, is they did it again in the 2000s. They totally hijacked your cover and then switched it, calling the NBA hot now and the NBA and the NHL not. I'll get the old yeah. cover. Look at that. Well, you know, Meyer. That's the yeah, modern day generation, Richard. It's not us old guys who grew up in the game who, you know, used to as kids used to go into the Boston Garden. There was a great usher named Tom Tweedy. He let us all of us kids in for nothing, and we race up about four stairways up to the heavens park a seat in the aisle, buy the hockey news for about a dime, and wait an hour and a half for the uh, opening face-off. I mean, that that was real life back in those days. <laughs> I, I want I to tell one story uh, that uh, goes back to, I think, 84 or 85, because it, uh, it was in the Olympic Saddle Dome in Calgary, and I'm running Western Canada for Hockey Night in Canada, and uh, the great Sports Illustrated ph photographer, Paul Barriswell, is in the building, Right. And he's setting up strobe lights. And as Mark, as you remembered, strobes drove television nuts. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm the cock of the walk in Calgary at the time. I'm I'm in my twenties, and I storm into Cliff Fletcher's office, and I say, Cliff, this is unacceptable. You're allowing strobe lights, and it's going to affect hockey night in Canada on a Saturday night. He said, John, Mark Mulvoy wants pictures. Mark Mulvoy gets pictures. <laughs> there was no discussion. Yeah. 
you know, Cliff and I have the same birthday, uh, several years apart, six or seven years apart. I talk to him every so often out in Arizona. He's a great guy. But we had an ongoing battle with the NHL over uh, strobe lights. You know, you couldn't shoot color photography in some of those arenas unless you had strobes. Of course, we never even tried to do it in New York because in order to put a plug in, I think you had to hire 42 electricians at triple time for 12 hours. So if we were doing a story in the Rangers and we used strobes, we shoot the game in Pittsburgh or somewhere else like that. We didn't go broke trying to take a picture. But in fact, uh, we were going to do a cover on the Red Wings during their early 90s years when they were maybe 93 or 94. And I didn't do the cover because uh, they pulled the lights on us, you know, uh, and we're going to do it. That's when they were a dominant team with Scotty and all the Soviet players sure. and everything. But the fact of the matter is, and I made the point, and Ralph Mellenby knew the point and everything else. Out of a, out of a, you know, one second, there were like 360 frames or something. You lost one frame. I mean, you lost nothing, Ralph. You know what I mean? And uh, anyway, it was a badge <laughs> of honor with them. And uh, I would say we won it about half the time because people like Cliff and under, understood we're trying to grow the game in the United States. Canada, the game was already there. And uh, you know, when the, the greatest thing that ever happened in 67 when the game went to the West Coast. So Sports Illustrated, with its 22 million readers, under, suddenly said, you know, this is a global game. This is a national game. And, of course, now it's an intergalactic game with games in, you know, in Australia. And they're all running over to Europe, which is what it should be. That really shows the growth of the game. But, you know, in those days, the, the people who are making the decisions in the game, and this was after Clarence, I didn't. You used to love it. You wanted to. You needed a quote. You're doing something. You'd call it. Campbell here. He'd pick up his yeah. own phone. You, <laughs> nobody does that anymore. You got to go through three, thirteen agents and four, forty-seven vice presidents. But uh, uh, we, you know, we lost the battle a few of the times, and I was. I really felt badly that the Red Wings, who deserved a cover in the magazine, didn't get it. Uh, so just finally, John, I've tracked it down. June twentieth, nineteen ninety-four. Why the NHL's hot and the NBA is not. Pavel Bure and Mike Richter representing yeah. hockey, uh, Hakeem and Ewing on the cover representing uh, basketball. So good flavor of uh, New York. So that Houston. means it was Van Vancouver Rangers and uh, the Knicks and it's Houston. Rock. Yeah, and, the, and right. Houston in the NBA final. Yeah, Boy, no, that's a very memorable cover. So Mark, I wanted to ask you this. You know, you um, you know, you were covering hockey in the late '60s, um, obviously into the early '70s, and you know having observed press boxes and the media today as john has you know you you see how many people now cover the game even in declining a declining media environment there's a lot of coverage um whether it's new media or old media but what was it like in the 60s like when you would pop in as like an si reporter like were the press boxes filled were there less people could you give our listeners just a sense of what, what was that like well there were plenty of people in there but the greatest difference richard now is you know, it, it's what I would call access. You know, it, it wasn't just me, but you'd go into a story. You know, if I were doing a story in the Canadians, I traveled on the on the charter with them or I rode the railroad with them. You know, I remember playing cards with Toe Blake and Busher Curry and, uh, you know, Red Fisher and people on a going through the Canadian, not the prairie, but through the Canadian night somewhere, whether it's going to Detroit or wherever it might be on a train. We had access. I mean, I, I, I watched the Super Bowl game in Jean Beliveau's den. Uh, when I go do a story in Montreal, for instance, I'd usually have dinner at Scotty's, uh, Scotty's house, Suvalo quick dinner. Then we'd go downstairs. He had a patched up sauna and he had some goofy wiring system. He could pick up the broadcast of three or four games. So because he said, I want to see who's skating with Perot and or whatever it might be and stuff like that. But we had access, you know, I can remember at, at practices. I don't know whether they let the press in at practices now, but 
I still remember one of the great times I'm sitting in the forum uh, with Claude Ruel and a bunch of guys. And I said, hey, Claude, I, I, I see you were just up in the Shawinigan, you know. How is that date who plays for, for Cornwall? He says, oh, Mark, I must tell you, he is more than worse. You know, you have that, <laughs> you have that interaction with people. You travel with them. I mean, you paid your way. You weren't a freeloader. But right. that, to me, is the sad thing. I mean, now I see that many broadcasters are not even traveling with teams to, to away games. I don't know how yeah. you do your job that way. Part of the job, but I'll tell you one of the reasons. When I was a rookie baseball writer for the Boston Globe back in the early 60s, I was on a plane going to Kansas City, DC-6B, which I think will land in about an hour, by the way. And uh, I was sitting next to Charlie Schilling, the second baseman, a rookie, maybe it was his second year. And he says to me, how much money do you make? Well, I'm 22 years old, traveling around the country on a charter with the Red Sox. You could, you know, I, I would have done that for free. Uh, maybe not. But uh, and I said, I think I make 5,500, maybe 50, you know, 105 bucks a week or something like that. He says, oh, I said, what do you make? He says, I make the minimum 6,500. Well, you know, th in those days, the, the, the economic gap between the athlete and the journalist was right. relatively insignificant. You know, I mean, I was a rookie writer. The other guys were making more. But my God, today, whatever the writer makes, the, the second baseman or the backup goalie or the third line checking wing, you know, they're making a couple of million dollars a year. And that impacts coverage. Uh, and what really impacts it, too, I'll be very blunt, is television. I remember standing one time, uh, um, I was at uh, Long Island and uh, during the playoffs uh, one year back in the 70s. And all of a sudden, all these guys kept sticking their mics at my questions. And, you know, I knew what was happening. I, I was going to do their job for them. So he asked, I'll never forget, ask Clark Gillies a question with about five F-bombs in it. And these guys said, you can't do that, we're live. I said, ask your own stupid questions. <laughs> but that was a, I mean, that, you could get away with that. And that's what bothered me. Now the interviews, they're all canned. Your guy sits there with the, with the team logo and sponsors behind them. And, you know, the intimacy we had in those days was fantastic. I mean, look at Canada, Russia in 72, the single greatest sporting event I've ever been a part of. Of course, I wrote the book with Kenny Drummond too, uh, about that series. But, you know, I came back, I went to Russia that summer and I came back and I said to my wife in the middle of August, I said, well, I'm off to, to Canada. I just got back from Russia. I'm off to Canada. I'll be back after the game on the 28th for about 48 hours. Then I've got to go to Stockholm so the team can stay in shape for a week. What a joke that was, by the way. And then off to Moscow, Prague. And then I had to come back and write a book. So I said, I'll be actually, I'll see you again in about eight weeks. And, uh, but that was the glorious part of it. She understood it. We had a couple of young kids at the time. They're not young anymore. Uh, but it was, a, it was a glorious time. And that's still the, anybody who tells you in Canada who was alive at that time, that's not the greatest moment in Canadian sports history. I, I love it. Yes, some of these young guys, they say, oh, when Crosby scored the goal to beat the U.S. at Vancouver. I mean, that was like an East-West All-Star game, if you ask me. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm curious. I'm curious. Uh, the 72 series, as a writer, how how difficult was it to convince your boss with a with an American address at Sports Illustrated to cover Canada versus the Soviet Union? Not at all. It was not difficult at all. It was you know, you know seventy two. If you think of September of seventy two, it's one of the most significant months ever. The, uh, you had Bobby Fischer winning, uh, beating Boris Spassky. You had the debacle. Well, first of all, it wasn't a debacle, but the the Munich Olympics. Right. Uh, uh, the 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 assault on the athletes, and then you had the U.S.-Russia basketball game, which was stolen from the U.S. at that time. I mean, it was a glorious month, but, you know, we just did those things. That was a seminal event, I mean, and it was not a thing. I actually went to Andre and Laguerre, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, and 
like May, June, as soon as I said, you know, we should do this. He said, of course, because it was going to take two months to get all the, you know, all the paperwork and passports and everything else together. Uh, and it was done brilliant. There was never a question that we could do it. Never. A question. And by, and by, by the way, I was in Mr. Hood's grade 10 science class uh, when Henderson scored the goal. And right. uh, we, uh, my father had, my father was the principal of the school that I was going to. And the d night before we negotiated the fact that every class should have a television. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, uh, you know what I love? Teddy Blackman was my roommate in, in wow. Moscow. And then uh, the great Red Fisher when we get to Prague for a couple of days. And the emotion in Prague, when we left Prague that Sunday on the, what is it, 30th, to come back to Canada, they couldn't land it. We had three. It was the longest day. I think we all over imbibed about four times that day because we went to London. The government sent a plane. I, I don't read not, not much of it. Not many of us remember. Then we couldn't land at Durval. We had to go to uh, the other airport in in Montreal. Finally went to. But the, the the memory we all have is at the airport in Prague when Stan Mikita was there. The game was played the night before strictly as a, an appreciation for Stan. And uh, he, he said goodbye to his mother. I don't know if he ever saw his mother again. But uh, we all hugged her, and I'm telling you, one of the most emotional things I've ever seen. And you know, a lot of people forget playing with Jill. It was ooh. Yeah, Mark, a lot of people forget the trip to Prague after yeah. after Game Eight. Uh, people. Well, funny thing about that, we win the game. Well, I say we because I was part of the traveling squad. And the next morning at the airport, you know, the, the Canadian players were dragging to say the least. They had an early morning flight. I don't know who scheduled that. It should have been a charter. And who's on the plane but Sevilo Bobrov, the Soviet coach. And he had an interest. I said, to, I went over, I said, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to scout. I said, you should have scouted before the last series, you know. <laughs> anyway, he was on the plane and uh, he got a lot of good nature, maybe not so good natured ribbing from a lot of the players on the team. But that yeah, the great thing about that, everybody was so, not pent up, but so emotionally involved for such a long period, particularly after losing game one in the forum on September 2nd. Getting into Prague on Friday night where the, there were no barriers. I mean, you could go to a restaurant, you could go into a bar, you could do all the things you want to do. And that was the, that was, that was the great tension easer, I think, for the whole team. Because everybody, I'm not saying they let loose or a bunch of drunks or anything like that, but everybody went out and enjoyed themselves for an evening, you know, with no pressure of, my God, I've got to figure out how to put it over Tretiak's glove tomorrow or something like that. That was a great part of that. But the amazing thing is after being behind 2-1-1 leaving Vancouver, you're going you're gonna to meet again in in Stockholm. I don't know anybody who's ever gone to Stockholm to stay in shape. <laughs> no, and of course, you had that game when uh, Lars Eric Schoberg stuck his stick in a cash's uh, uh, mouth. And right. that almost precipitated, you know, World War, whatever number it would have been. Yeah, that was the, that, but in many ways, I think a lot of people say, in addition to Phil Esposito's great speech in Vancouver, the games in Stockholm, and we had Harry on, galvanized the team. Yeah, very, very much so. Very, very much so. You know, early on when they got there, there were a couple of events at night. The guys got together, did some things all by themselves, and uh, you know, no family involved. The family didn't show up until uh, they were in Moscow, and it did. There was a tightness. There was a bond among the players, and you know, Harry, who, who did a spectacular job, by the way, managing that team, but he had some malcontents on the team. You know what I mean? Uh, guys with big egos making big money like John Paul Parisi was arguably the first or second best left wing on the team mm -hmm. and so he played and that alienated some of the higher uh, players and you know a guy like Vic Hadfield when he left I don't know whether his reputation ever recovered from that what uh, what was it like traveling 
to the Soviet Union at that time, um, you know, when, um, you know, we're coming off like the vestiges of the Cold War with the U.S. Obviously, there's not a ton of Americans, I'd imagine, that traveled there. And as a journalist, certainly, I know you're, you were a hockey journalist, but the political journalists, obviously, their rooms were bugged and stuff. So you'd have to presume that was the case. So what was that like? It was. Yeah. Well, Richard, you know, I, I was fortunate. Time Inc., <clears throat> Time Magazine had a substantial bureau uh, in uh, Moscow, run by a guy named John Shaw. He was the editor of the whole thing. But we had a key guy by the name of Felix Rosenthal, Rosenthal, whom we all figured was a KGB guy, operative of some sort. But he was totally dedicated to us. I remember years later when I was editor of the magazine, he came to New York and I took him to a clothing store up in Connecticut. I said, spend five or $6,000 as a thank you for everything you did for us. But he he was able to open doors for me. I mean, I believe I was the first American journalist ever allowed into the Soviet Central Army Club, the CSKA. And of course, the way you do that is you walk in with a bottle of vodka and you sit down in some high, higher up's office and they open the vodka. He has about four little quickies. And you know, you say, oh my God, it's nine in the morning. I don't know what the hell's gonna happen here. But uh, we had tremendous access. And uh, then when they came to the States, uh, that was the first time. And then when they came to the States, uh, subsequently like 74, I ended up taking half the team to Corvettes in the in the Porchester, New York mall, because they had practiced up there and bought them uh, blue jeans. That's all they wanted was blue jeans. I must have, uh, Sports Illustrated bought them, not me. I bet we spent three or $4,000 on blue jeans for the whole team. But that's, you know, that's how you get along with people. And uh, I always had very good access to them. You know, the times I went to see them out West playing, they came back to play in the 76 series, the Canada Cup, I think it was called at that time. Mm -hmm. Then they came back at Madison Square Garden that night and beat Jerry Cheevers and uh, that team big time. That was a, like an eight or nine to one game. But I always had instant access. It was never a problem with them. I went to I had dinner one night at Alexander Yakushev's house with his wife. I believe her name was Katia, K-A-T-Y-A. She was a wow. philologist and the, and the babushka lived. I mean, it was just it didn't get any better. That's the access you had. Wow. And, and I'll, tell you, I'll, tell, I'll tell you what, the 72 series. Um, the awareness of the great hockey players from the Soviet Union, in our country at least, just grew exponentially. I mean, you talk about Yakushev, Yakushev, Harlamov, uh, you know, it's Malsev, Asiliev. I mean, so many of those players became household names in Canada exactly. for those eight well, games. Well, you know, you looked at Yakushev and you said, he's the Soviet Frank Mahovlich. I mean, yes. that was a perfectly apt comparison between between two left wings <clears throat> could skate like the wind had all the talent in the world and occasionally took the odd or even shift off you know those I, things happened funny, my, the funny thing mark is i i uh, 2016 was the uh, was a, the last world cup it was here in toronto and uh, i was i was working it and uh, had the night off and sat in a private box and looked across to the box beside us and and there was Alexander Yakushev. And yeah. I said, I think that's Alexander Yakushev. And I don't pose with athletes very often. I don't get autographs very often. But I had to go. My, it's here somewhere in my office. I have a picture with Alexander Yakushev. Yeah. That why I did took, it take took... so long for him to get in the Holly, Hockey Hall of Fame? That's was always well, a mystery to me. Well, it's, I mean, it's the same group that, you know, yeah. they should have asked why why you took so long to get in the, yeah. in the hall as well. But I, I, the only thing I would say is that it, you know, we, the hall has changed its focus and you have to give the, the, the IIHF a ton of credit 
right. you have to give the international presence, Igor Larionov and mm -hmm. players like that now have become, you know, vital voices of in mm -hmm. the international game. And so there is more time given to international players coming into the Hall of Fame. Because remember, it's not the NHL Hall of Fame. It is no, the no, Hockey Hall of Fame. That's the Hockey Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they do a great job. And, you know, you look at hockey. I mean, obviously, I I didn't make a whole lot of friends with many of the owners. And John Ziegler and I had our problems. All I ever wanted the league to do was to, to, to march up to the big time and not try to run a sport with about six people on the 12th floor of a building above Madison Square Garden. You know, John and I became, you know, we were never enemies. In fact, in later years after I was retired and he was retired, Gordy Ritz used to invite the two of us as part of a group down to Augusta National every year. We'd go play golf for three or four days. In fact, I sent Gary Bettman a picture once of the two of us <laughs> at Augusta National. National. I said, friends, you know what I mean? And But we, there was no agenda. I just wanted the league to you know, step up and, and you'll know, be among the big four because it was so far behind and everything. And to, to Gary Bettman's credit, the league, you couldn't run it out of, you know, three offices. And now I think he probably has a couple of floors like everybody else, like Roger has and baseball has. It's a big time and you got to be big time. And that's what this current regime for the last, what, 30 years now mm. has done. They've grown the game, taking it different directions. You know, people have had ideas for games played outdoors played in australia and what have you like that to me it's to me it's all great 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 signs i do wish the press had greater access to everything but that's another story funny you say that so the first time i went to the nhl office in new york seven employees wow. seven employees at the nhl yeah. now there's 700 and they were yeah. they're they're in hudson yards now uh yeah. with a with a giant I think they got six floors now, Mark, yeah. in that way. We are with uh, Mark Mulvey, Richard Deitch, John Shannon on the McCowan podcast. Back after this. With Mark Mulvoy, the 2023 Elma Ferguson Award winner, which puts him in the Hockey Hall of Fame on November the 13th in the media wing. Mark, we, you know, we've, we've crossed a lot of dates already when you think about 72 and playing golf at Augusta National with John Ziegler, but where did the, where did the love of, of this game come from a kid from Boston? Well, you know, I grew up in the inner city of Boston in Dorchester, and we used to actually play hockey in the street outside. I went to Boston College High School. I played freshman hockey there, and then I think I was the manager of the team for a couple of years. But, you know, my high school yearbook at Boston College High School says aspires to become a sports writer. And uh, at that time, you know, you could get into the garden to watch games. I worked at the Globe. Uh, Tom Fitzgerald, the previous winner of the Ferguson, was there. Herb Walby, it's a great conflict of interest, but the Bruins PR guy was Herb Walby, who also wrote for the Globe. Figure that out. But <laughs> as a kid, you know, we used to play street hockey in, in the, in the, we play hockey in the basement between the coal bins, you know, with a plastic cup and a, and a stick. <clears throat> if you look at the great golfer, Alan Doyle, people say, where did you develop that swing? He says, he had a swing that he took the club back to about his knee. And he says, playing hockey in the, in the, basement of my house you know avoiding all the coal bins because you could only take it so far back or else you'd break something but that was the we all played hockey in Boston we played outdoors you know the kids up in two toilet Milton had rinks in Dorchester we had that was two flooded. toilet that was two toilet Milton you said <laughs> two toilet Milton in <laughs> Dorchester of course which was you know, maybe single toilet they flooded the parks you know so and when it got cold enough we'd skate outdoors which was really nice but it was it's a great game. It was outdoors. And, you know, I, I listened every night to Fred Cusick. He'd come on. WHDH would pick up the games, the road games at 935. And Fred 
you know, I'd listen to the game and, you know, you'd listen to everything. And uh, I could pick up, I picked up Foster Hewitt sometimes, hello, Canada, you know, et cetera. And we, we could also pick up games from Fort Wayne, the Fort Wayne, I think it was the Comets. They yes. had this broad something or other, and you listen to the Fort Wayne Comets. And, but that's what you did in those days. Uh, you know, it was just, I mean, then Fred Cusick and I became great friends when I was at BC. He was the sports director of WEI, and I had a five-minute radio show every night because they were the sponsor of BC Athletics. I think he paid me 10 bucks a day, which is a lot of money, by the way, for a college freshman or something like that. And, and uh, I know I love Fred. He was a great, great guy. But that's you how were... it started. It continued. My kids, one of my kids that went to the Salisbury School, he was one of two goalies, one of two goalies on the New England prep school championships team. My other kid was the captain of his high school team at the Brunswick School in Greenwich. Uh, tried out for the BC varsity and that didn't last long. Everybody else was a draft choice. Now he lives high in the Swiss Alps and uh, uh, he emails me. So I just saw a something game. I can't believe Tommy, where, where did you watch that? He can find hockey games way up in the top of the Alps. I don't know how he finds them. He and his wife and son. What's the but Swiss? It, that's, you know, it's what yeah. you did. And uh, by the way, you could afford to go to the games. It was a nickel on the subway. Tommy Tweedy was to let you in. When Tom died, the joke would be, that more that there'd be so many kids at his funeral, the kids who he'd let in the garden for free, that they probably have to have it at Fenway Park. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, Mark, you you are very much associated with Bobby Orr in terms of writing about him and your connection. Um, when did that relationship start? How did you how did you meet Orr at first? I think the first time Richard I met him actually was uh, I had watched him play in '66, but I hadn't watched him in junior. You know, that time was proposing a story about a junior in 1965 when hockey didn't have the national landscape. I think I met him for the first time during the Red Sox World Series against the Cardinals. He was on the field behind home plate and I met him there. And, you know, shortly now that was the first year of expansion and, you know, started writing about him, you know, instantly. And, you know, I was up to his camp. I went to visit his family up in Paris Sound. We used to go to Kuchiching in the summer for you know, middle of the summer, it was nice to get back into the hockey scene for four or five days after running around covering golf tournaments or baseball or whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, I, one of the saddest things was when I went to Moscow uh, in 70, what was the year of the, of the trade of that day? That was 75. Yeah. I came back from Moscow and I said to my wife, she said, what are you going to do? I said, this was a Wednesday. I said, I'm going to the garden. She said, you're nuts. I said, well, I, I've never seen Park and Orr play together. They had just made the trade, and I said, I want to see him play. So she came with me dutifully and lovingly, and here we go. And after the game, I was standing talking with Bobby in the bowels of the garden, and I said, happy Thanksgiving. And he turned to get on the, uh, get on the bus to take him to the airport or whatever the way they were going home. And the next day, it was revealed that as he stepped onto the bus, the knee went. He never played again the rest of that season. And I would submit that that happened in 75, that really ended the playing career of, to me, the guy who's, you know, essentially changed the, the way hockey has played forever. You ever forgive uh, Alan Eagleson for what he did to Orr? Uh, yeah, I've not forgiven him. I mean, he was off at 18% of the Bruins. It was never divulged to Bobby. And that's criminal. Alan paid a big price for that. Mm -hmm. It's not only paid a price by being incarcerated, but but uh, his stature, his status within the sport and among all the people he represented and who liked what he did and getting the 72 series done and everything, you know, that, that disappeared. You know, most of the, I think obviously most of the listeners of this podcast obviously are Canadian, but for me, you know, an American kid, 
um miracle on ice to me like was uh, the moment as a kid where like hockey sort of became something magical for me and one of the things i always remember about sports illustrated was um no cover language right on the magazine of which right. um which i always admire is that yours or is that another writer is that yeah, yours? That, that was Gil rogan i was the uh assistant managing editor i guess of the magazine me that was such like at the time like i just thought that was such a uh forward thinking kind of decision because yeah. historically now that always gets voted as the most famous sports illustrated cover of all time it's almost like a piece of art uh if you mm -hmm. sort of look at the cover as opposed to just a sports right. thing. and i just i would imagine for you you know a hockey kid from uh boston that must have just been a transcendent moment for you just as a fan well, I tell you, I woke up that Friday morning and uh, I, I, I said to myself, you know, I've seen every great hockey game played for the last 15 years. I said, if I don't see this game, because I was in the office, I had been up the Olympics earlier and, you know, it's just, we had to put out a magazine and I said, oh my God, I called my man, Ralph Spielman, who controlled the Timing airplanes. I said, Ralph, I got to get up to Lake Placid. He called me back 10 minutes later. So I got the hawker to take you to uh, just north of there, some little town. Uh, and we'll have a car take you to the game. So up I go, it's only a 25, 35-minute flight from Westchester up there. And I get to the game, and I run into Bill Torrey, and I ran into all kinds of people, uh, John Ferguson, Mike Duran, who unfortunately was later killed in a car crash, and a whole right. game of Francis. And I, I mean, when I retired, Ned Harkness sent, uh, took the seat out of the building that I sat in that day because I had written about it in my retirement thing, and it was delivered to me at my retirement. One of my kids has it now. I forget whether Duke or my son, Tommy. They both have that uh, in their den. And uh, I'll just never forget. But to me, I hate to say this, it was really a fluke. I mean, three weeks earlier, it was uh, 10 to 3 at Madison Square Garden. I think if they played 20 times, the U.S. would have won once. They happened to win that day. It was. It is, you're right. But, you know, we sat around with cover pictures, and... Uh, um, I looked at it and uh, Gil was there and, and he said, what do we say about this? I said, nothing, nothing. And that's how it ended up uh, on the cover. One of the sad things, Richie, you may remember Heinz Klutmeyer. Heinz took that picture. Unfortunately, yep. Heinz is, uh, uh, Heinz really has no uh, quality of life. He's really, uh, uh, it's, that he's alive is amazing, but uh. you, you go see him and you can't communicate. He's, it's a sad story. He's, he, uh, I mean, Mark obviously has, far more memories of Heinz Klubmeier than me. I, I caught him probably closer to the end than beginning. But this guy, John, was a genius. Like, literally, yeah. like, yeah. I've never, there's, I mean, there probably have been others, but there have not been many more photographers who thought ahead of what the shot would be and then got the shot. Because right. I, I was in um, Beijing with him, and he, you know, strategically planned and placed certain cameras in the water to get these remarkable shots of Michael Phelps that right. literally never been taken before because he was thinking, so he was right. so forward thinking he could do that. And then, you know, the history. Well, look at the book we did with Bobby Orr back in the early seventies when he had all the strobe shots about Bobby shooting a puck, you know, it was all right. done with uh, sequential strobe lighting. I mean, it was, it's brilliant. The guy, it's just sad to see him in the status. Uh, and uh, sorry. you know, the funny, the great thing about that, Michael Ruzioni stayed at my house a couple of times. He was down in New York speaking, and I had him speak at the, my kid's school one time. And he left his ring uh, at the house that night. Tommy, my son, wore it to school the next day. He was flashing <laughs> it around and stuff like that. But, you know, Mike was so smart. He realized yeah, Mike's abilities were limited, let's face it. Right. He retired, never played another game. The smartest thing, and he's been 
I mean, he still gives us victory speeches. You know, it's 43 years later, and he's still incredible. He's smart. He's smart a great eight guy. In, what was his favorite? Like eight inches to the left, I'd be a bricklayer, right? I mean, he's just That's a right. career. <laughs> exactly correct. He's a great, great guy, too. God love let me, him. Let me ask you, 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 talk about, you guys both talk about the photography of Sports Illustrated versus the written word. How did you prioritize that? What was more important to the guys in the office? Well, it's interesting. When I took over the magazine, well, first of all, the, the difference today in photography as opposed to years ago, uh, digital of photography. We used to, I used to spend millions of dollars a year on chartered jets to get film back from remote places, whether football games on Sunday or whatever, uh, to get the film back to New York to you know get it in print by Monday night. And now, of course, they just put the trigger going and it's digital and everything. It's a whole different thing. I think they've robbed the photographer. The eye of the photographer has uh, left us a little bit. Uh, because of the way they shot now. But yeah. when I took over the magazine uh, in 1983, I, I said, this is going to change, guys. I want to run fewer pictures bigger. I said, I don't want to clutter up pages with insets and multiple pictures. I said, I really want to run big pictures pronounced. Two years later, when the Redskins won the Super Bowl, uh, we didn't cut the length of stories or anything like that. We just probably ran one less story, maybe, maybe. We always had 10 or 12 stories an issue. But when the Redskins won the Super Bowl in San Diego, I think I started the magazine with six spread pictures, six, 12 pages, just six pictures spread over that, mm-hmm. showing six of the touchdowns that Doug Williams had thrown or run for or whatever it might be. And that was stunning. Uh, you know, a couple of guys, Frank DeFord would always complain about it. I said, Frank, after you've written 1,100 words, 1,100 lines, you know, the last 100 is, you know, what can you say? You never like that but uh, that was the to me we were sports illustrated so we were sports and illustrated and the best way to illustrate it was the great i mean look at walter yost neil leifer heinz klutmeyer brian lanker i mean god almighty uh, this was this was the hall of fame of photographers as richard would, would attest i'm sure yeah the, the one thing about uh meyer john was the end of the 2000s and the early 2010s that was really the end of the photography era at sports illustrated because timing fired all those full-time photographers and then magazine was never the same like that's where they essentially started picking up from getty and some of these other big um photo agencies and um long-time readers complained but at that point time inc was interested in just not essentially of money and by then time inc as a property um was such a minor player in the time warner um ecosystem that nobody really cared about the magazines and it was heartbreaking for those of us who started there when like you know like like uh, mark said like these photographers were like you know like they were larger than life like you know like for me someone like i love like william knack or tim laden like these were like giants to me but if you were any kind of photography person you know neil lifer the, the guy might he's like the ali of his generation and so it well, was to really you, horrible I mean, to see Richard, you talk about that, you know, I've always told people uh, I'm the beneficiary of the greatest timing you can imagine because I was there yes, at the glorious times where we made tremendous amounts of money. You know, I had, we had a plane, I had this, whatever you needed. We spent a lot of money. We went to Europe on the Concorde. You didn't miss anything. But it all went bad, I think, in about 96 or 7. The chairman of the company at that time, uh, they asked him about the internet. And he says, to me, it's the black hole. Well, if you really look at it, if the leader is telling you it's the black hole, immediately people forgot about the internet and get caught up on their own things. And as a result, Time Inc. was history, sports, 
they're a relative. That's the saddest thing for me. I mean, we, you know, we charted, you know, we were the conscience and the voice of sports. You know, we stood, Pete Rose isn't in the Hall of Fame because of Sports Illustrated. And now I have a problem with all this gambling saying, what did I do to Pete Rose that other people are doing right now in the game? We took on the academic abuses. That we took on the drug abuses in the NFL with that great cover on Don Reese and steroids. Yep. I mean, we took on everything. Nobody's doing that now. Nobody's doing that now. Sports, as you really look at the leagues, it's sort of Pravda. Right? I, I look at it as Komsomol Skaya Pravda in a way because it's really state-controlled media. You know, I read, I read Yeah, you, like you said, access sort of rules everything. John, you'll find this ironic. You know how Mark said 97 is sort of like the, uh, the end? That yes, literally, sir. My, the, when I was hired. So there you yeah. go. There. <laughs> Beginning and the end. Um, you know, and but, I'm not being, Mark, I'm you're not totally being, right. Like in many ways, even at like, my, you know, the place that I work, the athletic, we have a, um, you know, we have a partnership with BetMGM. So yeah. you lose any kind of standing if you're going to do it, right. some kind of investigative piece on gambling, right? If you have access. That's and right. everyone in Canada, as John can attest, Rogers, Bell, you cannot essentially go 20 minutes uh, watching their programming without some kind of ad for gambling at this point. But, but and well, the other part of it is that the, the, I think more to Mark's point as well is that the leagues are now controlling yes. the content. Exactly. Well, you know, I always, I, I, I was kidding um, uh, a couple of, uh, Dave and uh, I had, by the way, Richard, I had lunch with Paul about 10 days ago before I left for Florida. We had a nice long lunch. He had came down to my club in New York and it was great. I love Paul and, you know, he's done a great, yeah. Paul Fichtenbaum, who was yeah. the, the launching editor of The Athletic. But um, um, I lost my train of thought here for a second. Oh, I loved, I, I was kidding um, that, uh, I love it when the hockey uh, NHL.com, which is a comprehensive overview of the league. I love it when they say NHL.com exclusive. How the heck are you being <laughs> exclusive when you're really the house organ for the league? And by the way, this is all of them. I'm not just picking on hockey, but I said to my very good friend, Roger Cadell, one day I said, Roger, I said, there's, there's got to be an end to this at some point, And there's got to be you know, some counter stories somewhere because it's you know, not all chocolate peaches cream and chocolate layer cake well you know, yeah, listen one of the great one of the greatest you talk about league controlled content providers that nobody really thinks that it is is nfl films it is okay. magnificent what the sables yeah. did and yeah, what yeah. the league has done they're, and they're, continues yeah. to do they are the blueprint for every league to say we want to do that yeah. they're probably well, the, I, they're, they're probably the most elegant propaganda organ ever right yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you look at the NHL where it was, you know, 30 years ago when Gary Bettman took over, you know, it was a wannabe league. You know, it wasn't in the discussion among, you know, there was no such thing as a big four. It was the three, you know, and now they've elevated themselves on the periphery, but they're now part of the discussion, let's face it. And they should be. But, you know, the challenges going forth involving gambling and you know, Rogers controls so much of the media rights. You know, he's got 10 years in the bank, which that's got Adam Silver's kid because he's got to do some deals now. And how much money is left on the table? The frustration I have sometime, I went to watch a game the other night, the Bruins-Flyers uh, game, uh, Bruins-Panthers game. Mm -hmm. Well, I get the NFL, NHL package. It wasn't on that because it said the conflict with Florida. Well, Miami's three hours away from here, from where I live, as is Tampa. And they don't have their cable operations up here in Vero Beach, but yet I was blacked out from a game, and it's frustrating. Yeah. And the other thing is when you go to watch a game 
And well, you got to watch it on, you know, God knows, some streaming service somewhere. So God, I got to buy another. You know, you start spending more money for the games and it costs you to buy a ticket. Now, hey, it's Mark, that's where, that's where you pick the phone up in your phone, Gary, and say, Gary, you got to fix the outer outer regions. You know, you got to fix that, Gary. Yeah. And you know, well, he you would know, listen to you. Well, no, let me tell you. I had the bully pulpit for a long time, for what, 13 years, as Richard would know, right? The one thing you have to do is when you retire, and I retired very happy at the end of 1996, you know, it, you turn it over. I didn't go in the office as Sports Illustrated for six years after I went back for a party. I mean, when you leave, you leave. I convinced David Poyle, uh, who's a dear friend and we talk all the time. He's now about down here in Florida. He says, well, they're giving me an office. I said, you don't want the office. Even though you're an advisor, if you're in the office, they'll say, where's David? You want to just go to Florida and have them, if they have a question, Barry wants to ask you something, he can call you, he can Zoom you, whatever it might be. And he doesn't have an office, as it turns out. But you have, when you retire, when you leave, you leave. I, I had a long time to say my piece uh, you know, suggest things and, you know, and uh, the, the league is doing very well at this stage economically and uh, its place in the uh, in the universe. It doesn't need I, I don't have any suggestions. Well, it, it, you are you are on here because of your pending induction on the 13th of November. So I, I've got to ask you about the time when you were back in the trenches doing the writing. We've talked about 72 when I when I ask you about your writing days, whether it be around the Bruins or a Stanley Cup Finals, or what jumps out first? Well, you know it's funny. We we had the crew at Sports Illustrated. We had great writers. Frank DeFord, Curry Kirkpatrick was this greater combination of writer and reporter. I never felt as though I was a great writer. I do know I was a hell of a reporter, and I always told, like when I hired Peter King, I said, Peter. I'm hiring you because you're a fantastic re reporter. If you try to write like Dan Jenkins, you're not going to be here long. I said the same thing to Timmy Rosefort. You got to dance with what you brung. And unfortunately, people haven't done that all the time and they haven't survived too long, as Richard would would agree, I believe, uh, you know, in that universe. But yeah. what I remember, I, I, what I really remember is the accessibility among the hockey people. You know, they were glad to, to see you. What was the name of the little fellow in Montreal? Uh, preceded Claude Mouton, uh, I forget who it was. Uh, I mean, you get there, oh, they were so happy to see you. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, whatever you needed, you, you, boom, you need an interview, you could always see people. You never, that was the great thing about hockey. And the other thing is, unlike baseball at that time, you get frustrated with baseball because it become a, it become a foul sport in that time. There are a lot of players mm -hmm. who didn't want to deal with the media. They wanted to deal strictly with the TV people who would throw their mic in. What a great game you had. Oh, yes, I had two singles and I did it all. Right. <laughs> Thank you very kindly. I wanted to ask why he, you know, whatever it might be. And we could do that at Sports Illustrated. And that's what I enjoyed. We had, we had, we had free reign to do what we wanted to do. And fortunately, the magazine, as Richard would tell you, in those days, I mean, if you, one time I said to Andre Laguerre, I said, I'm going to go see a different hockey game in a different city every night for a week. Off I went to see Billy Lahead somewhere in Oshawa. I went to the Bean Pot. Went to see Pat Stapleton in Chicago, Andy Hevington in Portland, Charlie Schultz, the Peanuts cartoonist, my pal in uh, Santa Rosa, California. Came back to the Hockey Hall of Fame up in, uh, what was it, Duluth or one of those, Eveleth, I think. And yep. then I went to see the Johnstown Jets play the Broome County Dusters because the Broome County Dusters general manager was Bobby Orr's brother. And that was the end of a nice week. I also remember the time I said, I said, I really want to go up and do a story on this kid, Phenom, who's supposed to be the next everything, Guy Lafleur. So I went up, he, he didn't speak a word of English. So, you know, but it was, it was a great time. 
And I went up to see him in Chikudini, one of those little towns. It was, it was great. And uh, I was the first, that was the first story uh, on, Gila by, on Gila Fleur in any American publication. Wow. So, but it was uh, the access you had. You didn't have to go, Richard, you know how it is now. You want to do a story, you got to call an agent. An agent's going to call us. We didn't do that. If you're doing a story in the Canadians, you call Claude. Claude, I'll be there. I need, you know, press pass. And, you know, you get in, check at the hotel, you go to the rink and, God, at the end of the game, maybe you grab the Kenny and Linda Dryden, or Peter and Kenny Mahavra say in Montreal, you go and have dinner or something like that. Yeah, you, know? right. you always went to the Texan and had lunch after practice. Oh, the, uh, the, uh, the mighty Texan, absolutely. I it's mean, like it, those are the days. I don't think yeah. that happens anymore. No chance. It's inconceivable to think that a writer could today um, hang out with Austin Matthews, go back to his oh house. My God. Like if you, it, your only shot at that would be Austin's got some kind of lot you know line of clothing yeah. or something he wants to promote so you yeah. can come to a, his house for 15 minutes yeah. and one of the questions has to be about clothing the the access you're talking about mark it, it honestly it may as well be like 1840 let alone right. like yeah. it's it, it's it's inconceivable to even place it into today's world you know sports is the loser let's face it i remember richard uh in about 1990 91 i I'm, Alan Shipnick was introduced to me. I was playing, I think, in the AT&T at a pebble. And Paul Spangler, who ran golf, said, I got a kid. I really want you to meet. I said, Paul, I've got a million kids. I don't. He said, so I met him. I said, hey, kids, send me your clips. Oh, hired him, you know, intern. And even while he went to UCLA, we paid him. He did a lot of stuff on the West Coast and everything like that. But that was, you know, that was such a different generation. You know, you could do all that stuff. And uh, it worked pretty well. Yeah. Was there any greater rivalry than Boston-Montreal? No, not in that days. The Boston New York rivalry was a fake rivalry. That was sort of the owners but of Boston Montreal. Boston my Montreal. Goodness. And you know, but but I can remember back when I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, there was no rivalry because the Canadians would always be sending Cliff Pennington and Billy Carter and 14 other guys who couldn't skate Orval Tessier to the Bruins. And God knows, you know. I mean, the Bruins traded Dryden to, to Montreal for Flotsam and Jetsam. I don't know who the heck uh, they were. You know what I mean? The Canadians just lorded, oh, we got Cliff Pennington covered. I mean, the guy never saw a corner in his life. He nope. said, oh, my God. Don Head. I can't tell you all the guys we watched in Boston who, God almighty, it was brutal. Oh. Mark, but, I but there was nothing better in the great years. I think my wife would tell you that there was never a Bruin-Canadian game of any even relative substance. I might not even be doing a story. I'd say, I got to be in Boston tonight. And I'd maybe take the train up from Rye, where I lived, or if it was in Montreal, I'd fly up, you know, maybe the night before, have dinner with some people, watch the game, come out. You did it automatically. Yeah. You know, you didn't well, think about it. I'll tell you what, you have brought back so many great memories. Uh, I am thrilled for you that you have, you are going to be inducted into the media wing of the Hall of Fame on the 13th. And I, I can't thank you enough for giving us some time today. Well, I've greatly enjoyed it. I'm greatly looking for, I'm bringing about, I think my whole family, except my son and his wife and a little guy who live in Switzerland, I'm going to have about 24 or five people up for the weekend. And everybody's looking forward to it. One of my kids, the grandkids is leaving. He's at Georgetown. He'll be coming up. Another one at Wake Forest. I think she's coming up. So it's, you know, it's going to be a nice weekend. Just getting everybody together. We all live fairly close to each other in Westchester County, but this is a different event. My brother, Tommy, who was the editor of the Boston Globe for a long time is coming up with my brother, Bob, my sister from Cincinnati is coming in. I think she's coming in for a month. I don't know. She seems to, <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is, but I'm really looking forward to it. And I can't thank you enough. I've greatly enjoyed the time and reminiscing about, you know, the great times in the game of hockey, uh, mainly because I was so fortunate. 
Uh, I mean, life is a matter of timing. Let's face it. My timing was perfect. And ours was today, too, for having you on. Thank you, Mark. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you, Ricardo. Mark Mulvoy. This is the McCown Podcast. Richard and I back after this. Richard, I, 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 there was a time there. I actually, you know, I get criticized all the time for interrupting and not speaking and speaking too much. Uh, I, I think I counted. I, w- I didn't speak for thirteen minutes because because wow. you, 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 you and you and Mark got into SI talk, and it was yeah. it was fun. It, you, you, I could see it in your uh, in your eyes. You were having fun. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, Movoy is uh, he's a true icon at the place that meant a lot to me and was my dream place to work at. And John, there are two, um, to me, there are sort of two famous eras of Sports Illustrated. One is the 60s. Uh, he, he referenced Andre Laguerre, who is one of the most famous magazine editors in history. And that's when um, all of these people were just sort of discovering how to make a national sports magazine. And they did all this experimental stuff. And obviously, Mark Mulboy was a writer at the time. And then the other era was Mark Mulboy as the managing editor of Sports Illustrated in the 80s when Sports Illustrated had endless money. It was essentially an ATM. I don't, I'm sure you've heard, John. There were stories that Mark said was like, and I called the Time Inc. plane to That's fly right. me to X. Like money from what, this is again before my time. Money from what I understand was no object. Like literally there was no story the that magazine could not assign. And also in terms of just being part of uh, Sports Illustrated, there are these famous stories. If you worked in office on Fridays, it'd be like a drink cart that would come by with tuxedoed like waiters giving you like martinis and stuff. I mean, it, it sounds like Mad Men. Yeah. You can't even contemplate that in today's era, but Movoy, um, I know a lot of people who worked for Mark who eventually became my editors. And um, you know, he was, they said a bomb vivant. He loved sports writing and there was nothing, no, there was no object when it came to money that he would not spend to get a story. And he told you a little bit about that here. Yeah, it was it was it was fascinating. I'm I'm sure there's some people who are regular listeners to the to the podcast that may turn it off quickly, but this is one if you uh, if if you love sports and want to care and know about the history of sports and media. Yeah, uh, to me, this is a must listen. This one yeah. today was, uh, it was and, it, and by the way, it was. Uh, it was fun to do. I I I don't I don't sit with a smile on my face very often, but uh, I tell you what, I had a smile on my face for fifty minutes today. Yeah, this is one McCown would love because he loves to get back into the uh, sort of the back in the day stuff. And you know, the one thing we couldn't get to because we obviously could have gone longer with Mark. I would have loved to get some more Scotty Bowman stories because he's clearly he clearly has a great relationship with him to the point where he's hanging out with him in his wow. uh, watching hockey. Tell you what, I'll I'll talk to the producer and and maybe we'll get Scotty and Mark on together and then uh, we won't have to speak at all. It'd be great. Just hit the <laughs> like. Well, appreciate that. Tomorrow we talk about the National Football League as uh, another week starts after the trade deadline, after the first coach has been fired. We'll talk with Trey Wingo tomorrow on the McCowan podcast. Talk to you then. Mm-hmm.